Chapters eight, nine, and ten of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight. Ruth's nurse, Mrs. Jiff, was fat, elephantine, and unctuous. Nursing agreed with her. She had tasted too many bowls of wine whey on the stairs, tipped up too many bottles of porter in the closet, slid down too many slippery oysters before handing them to her lady, not to do credit to her pantry devotions. Mrs. Jiff wore an uncommonly stiff gingham gown, which sounded, every time she moved, like the rustle of a football among the withered leaves of autumn. Her shoes were new, thick, and creaky, and she had a wheezy, dilapidated, bellowsy way of breathing, consequent upon the consumption of the above-mentioned port and oysters, which was intensely crucifying to a sick ear. Mrs. Jiff always forgot to bring her own comb and hairbrush. She had a way, too, of opening drawers and closets by mistake, thereby throwing her helpless victim into a state of profuse perspiration. Then she would go to sleep between the andirons, with the new baby on the edge of her knee, in alarming proximity to the coals, would take a pinch of snuff over the bowl of gruel in the corner, and knock down the shovel, poker, and tongs every time she went near the fire, whispering, shh, 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 at the top of her lungs, as she glanced in the direction of the bed, as if its demented occupant were the guilty cause of the accident." Mrs. Jiff had not nursed five-and-twenty years for nothing. She particularly affected taking care of young mothers with their first babies, knowing very well that her change shortened with every after-addition to maternal experience. She considered herself, therefore, quite lucky in being called upon to superintend little Daisy's advent. It did occasionally cross Ruth's mind as she lay, almost fainting with exhaustion, on the pillow, while the ravenous little Daisy cried, "'Give! Give!' whether it took Mrs. Jiff two hours to make one cup of tea and brown one slice of toast, Mrs. Jiff solacing herself meanwhile over an omelet in the kitchen with Betty and pouring into her ready ears whole histories of gentlemen as twasn't gentlemen whose ladies she nursed, and how nobody but herself knew how late they did come home when their wives were sick, though to be sure she'd scorn to tell of it. Sometimes, also, Ruth innocently wondered if it was necessary for the nurse to occupy the same bed with her lady, particularly when her circumference was as behemothish and her nose as musical as Mrs. Jiff's, and whether there would be any impropriety in her asking her to take the babe and keep it quiet part of the night that she might occasionally get a nap. Sometimes, too, she considered the feastability of requesting Mrs. Jiff not to select the time when she, Ruth, was sipping her chocolate, to comb out her false front, and polish up her artificial teeth, and sometimes she marveled why, when Mrs. Jiff paid such endless visits to the kitchen, she was always as fixed as the North Star, whenever dear Harry came into her chamber to have a conjugal chat with her. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 How do you do this morning, Ruth? The old lady, lowering herself gradually into a softly cushioned armchair. How your sickness has altered you. You look like a ghost. I shouldn't wonder if you lost all your hair. It is no uncommon thing in sickness, or your teeth either. How's the baby? She don't favor our side of the house at all. She is quite a plain child, in fact. Has she any symptoms yet of a sore mouth? I hope not, because she will communicate it to your breast, and then you'll have a time of it. 
I knew a poor feeble thing once who died of it. Of course you intend, when Mrs. Jeff leaves, to take care of the baby yourself. A nursery girl would be very expensive. I believe Harry has already engaged one, said Ruth. I don't think he has, said the old lady, sitting up very straight, because it was only this morning that the doctor and I figured up the expense it would be to you, and we unanimously came to the conclusion to tell Harry that you'd better take care of the child yourself. I always took care of my babies. You oughtn't to have mentioned a nursery girl at all to Harry. He proposed it himself, replied Ruth. He said I was too feeble to have the care of the child. Pooh! Pah! Stop! no such thing you are well enough or will be before long now there's a girl's board to begin with servant girls eat like boa constrictors then there's the soap and oils she'll waste oh the thing isn't to be thought of it is perfectly ruinous if you hadn't made a fool of harry he never could have dreamed of it you ought to have sense enough to check him when he would go into such extravagances for you but some people haven't any sense Where would all the sugar and starch and soap go to? I'd like to know. If we were to have a second girl in the house. How long would the woodpile or pitch kindlings or our new copper boiler last? And who is to keep the back gate bolted with such a chit flying in a doubt? Will you please hand me that camphor bottle? said Ruth, laying her hand upon her throbbing forehead. How's my little snowdrop today? said Harry, entering Ruth's room as his mother swept out. What ails your eyes, Ruth? said her husband, removing the little hands which hid them. A sudden pain, said Ruth, laughing gaily. It has gone now. The camphor was too strong. Good Ruth, brave Ruth. Was Harry deceived? Something ails his eyes now. But Ruth has too much tact to notice it. Oh, love! Thou skillful teacher, learned beyond all the wisdom of the schools. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 You will be happy here, dear Ruth, said Harry. You will be your own mistress. Ruth danced about from room to room with the careless glee of a happy child, quite forgetful that she was a wife and a mother, quite unable to repress the flow of spirits consequent upon her new-found freedom. Ruth's new house was about five miles from the city. The approach to it was through a lovely winding lane, a little off the main road, skirted on either side by a thick grove of linden and elms, where the wild grapevine leaped, clinging from branch to branch, festooning its ample clusters in protocol profusion of fruitage, and forming a dense shade impervious to the most garnished noonday heat, while beneath The wild briar rose unfolded its perfumed leaves in the hedges, till the bees and hummingbirds went reeling away with their honeyed treasures. You can scarce see the house for the drooping elms, half a century old, whose long branches at every wind gust swept across the velvet lawn. The house is very old, but Ruth says, All the better for that. Little patches of moss tuft the sloping roof, and swallows and martins twitter round the old chimney. It has nice old-fashioned beams running across the ceiling, which threaten to bump Harry's curly head. The doorways, too, are low, with honeysuckle, red and white, 
wreathed around the porches, and back of the house there is a high hill, which Ruth says must be terraced off for a garden, surmounted by a gray rock, crowned by a tumble-down old summer house, where you have as fine a prospect of hill and valley, rock and river, as ever a sunset flooded with rainbow tents. It was blessed to see the love-light in Ruth's gentle eyes, to see the rose chase the lily from her cheek, to see the old spring come back to her step, to follow her from room to room, while she draped the pretty white curtains and beautified, unconsciously, everything her fingers touched. She could give an order without having it countermanded. She could kiss little Daisy without being called silly. She could put out her comb and let her curls flow about her face without being considered frivolous. And, better than all, she could fly into her husband's arms when he came home and kiss him without feeling that she had broken any penal statute. Yes, she was free as the golden orioles, whose hanging nests swayed to and fro amid the glossy green leaves beneath her window, but not as thoughtless. Ruth had a strong, earnest nature. She could not look upon this wealth of sea, sky, leaf, bud, and blossom. She could not listen to the little birds, nor inhale the perfumed breath of morning, without a filling eye and brimming heart, to the bounteous giver. Should she revel in all this loveliness? Should her heart be filled to its fullest capacity for earthly happiness, and no grateful incense go up from its altar to heaven? And the babe— its wondering eyes had already begun to seek its mother's, its little lip to quiver at a harsh or discordant sound. An unpractised hand must sweep that harp of a thousand strings, trembling fingers must inscribe, indelibly, on that blank page, characters to be read by the light of eternity. The maternal eye must never sleep at its post, lest the enemy rifle the casket of its gems. And so... By her child's cradle, Ruth first learned to pray. The weight her slender shoulders could not bear, she rolled at the foot of the cross, and, with the baptism of holy tears, mother and child were consecrated. End of chapter 10 Recording by Deborah Knight, United States of America